Hey, pod classmates. Welcome to another mini pod. Okay, so a quick update on the title of these mini shows. I know, I know. I said I was going to put up a survey on my Instagram stories last time, but frankly, I've been overwhelmed with some last minute suggestions for names lately. So, and I promise this time, I'm going to pick my favorite three or four names and put them up this week on my stories where you can vote on your favorite title. We can all be done with this national nightmare. One last thing, uh, I've received some really amazing feedback on the podcast. It's almost been so nice that I worry I'm either being pranked or everyone but me knows that I'm dying, so they're all trying to be nice to me in my final days. Or maybe, and admittedly this is probably the least likely scenario, people genuinely enjoy the show. Either way, but especially if I'm dying, please go to whatever platform you use to get this show and give it a review. It turns out that I don't know millions of people, and I can't write my own reviews, so I'll need your help with both. The more reviews my show gets, the more people will find my show. That's not my rule, it's just how these algorithms work. Oh, and if you haven't already subscribed, please grant this dying man another favor and subscribe. And if I'm not, in fact, dying, do it because you love the show and want to hear it without the hassle of having to look for it every week. Okay, lots to get to in today's show, so let's get started. But first a fake commercial break. Today's episode is brought to you by Late Work. Late Work. Yes, it's due today. show. My name is Jason West. You can find me on all major forms of social media with the username at teachmemrwest, or you can email me at podclasspod, that's podclasspod, at gmail.com. Let's start this week with a few listener questions. Remember, if you have a question, hit me up on social media or email me. I promise I'll do my best to answer your questions on or off the air. The first question this week is courtesy of at literature daydreams. The question is, do you have a strategy to learn your students' names quickly? So, uh, yes, I do have a strategy to learn my students' names. Uh, I have a couple, actually. There's one I really like that I'm going to share with you. So when I taught elementary and middle school, I'd start this activity where I would tell my students that I don't just have a normal brain, but I had a super brain. And a power that came with having a super brain was that I could memorize every student's name in the class in less than 15 minutes. The kids would all laugh and tell me it was impossible and that there was no such thing as a super brain, etc., etc. So I'd set a timer and tell the kids that before the time was up, I'd be able to point to each student in the class and say their name. So it was kind of a game. It was a challenge. So I'd begin the timer and I'd point to the first four students at a table and ask them to tell me their names. Then I'd say each name back and I'd move to the next table and ask them for their names. Once they told me, I'd go back to the first table, say the names of those four students, followed by the new names I had just heard. I was just going through, just going in this one particular order again and again and again. It's such a fun and often funny way to start the year because the kids, they would get to see me sweat and struggle because I definitely don't get their names right the first time, and I definitely mix up names a few times as well. 
They also get to see how my brain works and how I use mnemonic devices to try to remember names and orders of names. It just shows another person's way of thinking and trying to retain knowledge, which is a really great way to start the year as well. Now, I have to say, 15 minutes is actually more than enough time to do this. Uh, if there's crazy behavior in the class, of course, then obviously you'd never get through the whole activity on time. But from my experience, this activity is so fun and engaging for students that, well, they can't help but get involved and act appropriately. And honestly, you'd be surprised at how quickly this helps you learn the names of your students. Now, since I switched back to high school, I've stopped doing this, mostly for logistical reasons. My school has this three-week window where students' schedules move and shift all the time. But you know what? Now that I'm hearing this out loud, I'm realizing that's a pretty garbage explanation. Oh no, you mean I might learn the name of a student at my school even though he isn't in my class? Stop! Stop! No, really, just stop. You know what? Okay, I've convinced myself even. I'm going to go back to doing this on day one of this new school year. Thank you for reminding me at Literature Daydreams. I hope that helped you as much as it helped me. Okay, uh, I'm going to paraphrase this next question for the sake of length. But the question is essentially, do your students work in the same groups all year or do they change? This is from at edu highway, edu highway, edu highway. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. So uh, actually, I do switch my groups from time to time, but I don't have to switch them too often because of how much time I put initially into constructing my groups. Uh, basically, I use uh, a lot of teachers have various pedagogical resources at their disposal. And what I use is psychological warfare. Um, I know that sounds harsher than uh, it should, um, but it's, I mean, it's literally what I use. So uh, what I mean by that is I get to learn the students' personalities through various games and activities that I do with them at the beginning of the year. Once I've identified who the alpha students are, once I've identified who the independent students are, the kids who kind of would do their own thing regardless of what the leaders might say, um, and who the complete followers are in the class, that's how I construct my table. So uh, I have table groups with four students in each table. And rule number one is you cannot put multiple alphas at a table because they will just spend the entire time fighting each other over who is the actual alpha. So you find your alpha, you put them at a table. Then what I do is I take my uh, the rest of my three students and I pick two independent students. So these are two students who kind of would be good students. They would just sort of do their own thing. They don't need to be told. They're not going to tell others. They're just going to sort of sit there and do their own thing. I put those two students with the alpha. Then I take my follower and I round out the table. Now, a lot of teachers confuse this concept. And more often than not, your alpha students are not going to be the best students. So you need to be cognizant of that and be cognizant of who you partner them with because you want them to be good students, but you also want to allow them to grow as leaders and, and understand the power that they have as natural born leaders. So uh, that's kind of how I make my groups. I pick one alpha, two independents, and one follower, and that's how I put them together as a table. It has worked for me for over a decade, and I've only had to switch my tables maybe once, twice a year at most, uh, depending on how, you know, how comfortable students get, because I teach ninth grade and ninth graders, you know, they will change over the course of the year. And someone who I thought was um, 
more of an independent or a follower might blossom into a leader and I need to sort of adjust my seeding charts accordingly. But that is how I construct my groups and that is why I don't have to switch them too often. And I hope that answers your question, Edu Highway. Okay, last question. This one is care of at Samaya Terry. Uh, the question is, what are some traditions or superstitions you have for the first day of school? Uh, great question. Actually, I have this tradition for my first day that dates back, I mean, all the way to the Aztecs. Uh, yeah, that's right. I'm talking about blood sacrifice. I take a live goat, bring it to the front of my class. No, I'm, I'm kidding, of course. Uh, actually, for me, on the first day at my school, we have these shortened periods for students to be able to visit each of their classrooms. Normally, we have a block schedule at my school where students go to half of their classes every other day for about an hour and a half each. But because I see each of my classes on the first day for about 25 minutes, I don't have much time to really get into anything. So I spend the first 15 minutes or so asking the students to fill out a survey about themselves. It's about three to four pages, and it's a mixture of fill-in-the-blank, true-false, short answer questions, all about them, and a few current event opinion questions sprinkled throughout questions like, what do you think is the most important news story from this year? Uh, I love doing this because I hold on to these surveys. I read over them to get an idea, general idea, of what my new students are like, but mostly I hold on to these because... I like to give them back to my students on the last day of the school year. And right before I give it back to them, I tell them how proud I am, how they've grown so much and changed so much since the beginning of the year, and how it might be really hard to notice when you're in it, but someone, you know, as an observer in the teacher, in the teacher role, I actually see it, and it's a pretty stark difference. Uh, and of course, the kids inevitably tell me that they don't feel like they've changed much, and when they do that, I just start passing back the original surveys. And of course, the kids start losing their minds. They start, they start saying things like, I can't believe I used to like this show, or oh my god, my handwriting was so messy, or yeah, Spongebob is still my favorite show, and so forth. And then of course, the rest of the time, for the last 10 minutes, there's uh, a couple of games that I play with the students. And again, I use these games as a way to learn about my students and their personalities, uh, to identify who my alphas are, etc., etc. So I hope that answers your question. And uh, yeah, if you have any questions about my first day activities, feel free to hit me up through email or social media. I'm happy to talk more in depth about these. Okay, so let's get into the main topic this week. Stopping the pinsanity. I love social media. Full disclosure, I'm a social media addict. Like, really, I am all over it, checking up on things, posting cultivating the accounts that I follow, which is why I feel the need to bring up this week's topic. I'm talking about my least favorite time of the year on social media, the back-to-school check-out-my-classroom-makeover weeks. Yes, these few weeks on social media are to education what a bird of paradise's mating ritual is to producing a superior bird. Well, that was cute, but maybe displaying bright colors and doing a wacky dance isn't the best way for a bird to avoid being eaten by a snake. Ultimately, these posts do nothing but create a culture where teachers either pat themselves on the back or lament about how they wish they too were as crafty. And like most things teachers do in education, we've completely stolen this concept from someone else. Anxious Pinterest parents. See, since the development of Pinterest, parents have been tormenting themselves by looking at pictures of perfection and questioning everything they are as parents. 
While some parents have owned their imperfections, leading to the often hilarious Pinterest fail memes, many parents have internalized these insecurities. According to a survey done by the Today Show, of 7,000 mothers, an astonishing 42% said they suffer from something called Pinterest stress. This leads parents to spending even more time on the social media platform, not because they are addicted like yours truly, but because they feel the need to punish themselves for not being good enough parents. This level of self-deprecation has become so prevalent that parents can often be heard saying things like, well, I baked a cake for my kid's birthday party, but I mean, it wasn't Pinterest-worthy or anything. Uh, hello, you're not just a parent, but you baked a goddamn cake from scratch and you didn't give anyone at the party salmonella. Trust me, that's impressive enough. But parents don't hear all that. All they do is compare what they're doing to what other parents are doing. Or at least what they say they're doing. It's like keeping up with the Joneses, only if the Joneses made perfect banana pancakes in the shape of the Taj Mahal right before school. Seriously? You do that shit on a school day? What we also fail to forget is what happens behind the curtains of these perfect parent Pinterest posts. And I promise that phrase was a lot harder to say than my crafty podcast editing skills made it seem. Numerous stories have been told of spousal arguments and parent neglect, all stemming from the desire to create something Pinterest-worthy without stopping to think about whether or not it actually matters. It's like how the contestants spend way too much time and energy fighting each other over The Bachelor. Ladies, you're fighting over a schmuck who won't actually marry any of you, so even if you win, you lose. And this is where education comes into the equation. Teachers are doing the same thing to themselves with these back-to-school, check-out-my-classroom makeover posts, spending up to $5,000 of their own money on classroom decorations and non-essential supplies. One of the primary reasons for teacher burnout is stress and mental health. Is it possible that looking at Pinterest-worthy classrooms adds to that? I don't know. Is it possible that Ed Hardy clothing makes guys look like micropenis douchebags? Yeah, I'd say it's pretty effing likely. Now, this podcast is for anybody, whether you are in education or not. But this question is strictly for teachers on social media. Why are we doing this to ourselves? I'd like to believe that the answer is, well, we do it for our students, of course. But the facts just don't bear that out. According to a study conducted by Carnegie Mellon University, students do worse in rooms that are overly decorated as compared to students in rooms that are sparsely decorated. To further that point, one of the researchers, Dr. Anna Fisher, notes that we already know how ineffective non-essential classroom decorations are. She says, quote, The amount of stuff goes down as the age goes up. College students typically face pretty empty classrooms, unquote. That's right. It turns out that if you're a history teacher, putting up a poster of Elizabeth II with the graphic, Yas, queen, won't actually make your kids better students. In fact, the study makes it pretty clear that the more junk we throw up on our walls, the less our kids will actually learn. Taking it another step further, what we so often fail to consider when we look at these beautifully decorated classrooms or these sudden classroom makeovers is how they will affect special ed students who suffer from attention deficits, visual processing issues, or a real discomfort with change, which is a pretty common trait in students with autism. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't decorate your classrooms or do anything to make your space feel personal and comfortable for you and your students. For example, I have LED lights in my classroom because LED lights have been proven time and again to be more soothing to students, especially special ed students, than the harsh fluorescent lighting that's typically found in a classroom. What I'm saying 
is that we should all be a little less focused on emulating what other teachers are doing on social media and more focused on what we need and what our students need. Much like how we align our lessons with content standards, we should align our decorations with a purpose for learning. Do your students need reminders about the order of operations? Great, put up an attention-grabbing poster. Do your students need strategies for annotating a text? Awesome, create an infographic that covers your whole door. Does your classroom feel uncomfortably sterile? Go ahead and put some plants on the windowsill. But do kids really need floating broomsticks to remind them of a Quidditch match at Hogwarts? Or a complete recreation of Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory? No, they don't. And besides, Oompa Loompas will make your room smell like the inside of a rotting horse carcass, trust me. And yes, I'm sure most of your students would love it if your classroom reminded them of a young adult fiction fantasy school. There's a whole conversation we can have another day about what motivates students to come to school. I'm also sure that these types of decorations won't make your kids better learners. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and put my money on the research that shows it will actually hurt your students learning your content. So, save your money. And save your self-esteem. You don't need to keep up with the online Joneses. In fact, you shouldn't, especially if you'd rather be an exceptional teacher than merely a fun teacher. When you see a parent post something extremely Pinterest-worthy on social media, it's fair to wonder what they've sacrificed for the illusion of perfection. You can also wonder the same thing about overly decorated classrooms. What are these teachers sacrificing in the name of Pinterest perfection? Again, I'm not discouraging classroom decorations. Go ahead and decorate your classroom all you want. Make that space yours. You're going to spend an awful lot of time there, and it should be comfortable to you. What I'm suggesting is that you make sure you also decorate it with a purpose that's aligned with student learning. If you do that, you'll break this chain of madness, and you'll stop the pinsanity. That is our show. If you have any thoughts on today's episode, please feel free to hit me up on social media. I can be found at, at @teachmemrwest on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also email me your thoughts and questions to podclasspod, that's podclasspod, at gmail.com. I hope you come back next week for my interview with actress Miriam Korn. That's right, I don't just talk to teachers, I know plenty of other people. We're going to talk about her acting career, her childhood experiences in education, and why she wants to quit Hollywood and become a teacher. Okay, whatever. I still knew her before she wanted to become a teacher. I'm still well-rounded. Anyway, it's a great interview, and you're not going to want to miss it. That's all for this week. Podcast dismissed. Dismissed.